0: Ladies and gentlemen, here we are back at the True Life Podcast with an amazing individual who has an amazing story, and he's done a lot of hard work to get to that story. Uh, Professor Joseph Sassoon, how are you? Welcome to the True Life Podcast. Thank you very much. I'm doing well, and thanks for having me. Well, it's a real pleasure. You've put together quite a story. And while it is your story, it's the story of a family. It's the story of a dynasty. And it's an amazing book. I, I, I'm curious as to how it came about.
1: Well, it's actually, I was never interested in writing the history. Um, I got contacted by someone also named Joseph Sassoon, who happened to be living in Western Scotland, very beautiful place. And, um, you know, I responded to him and then we chatted on the phone and then that summer I was in England, so I went and visited him, and he began to tell me stories about his mother, his grandparents, showing me pictures, and have to say, got me interested. And as I was in England, I went to the archives, checked the archives there, and one thing led to another, and then found an incredible trove of documents at the National Library in Jerusalem. Later on, I went to India, to China, to trace uh, the family. And that's how it came about.
0: It's fascinating. I I like in the beginning of the book, too, how uh, I think you may have led on the story about your lovely wife encouraging you to follow up with the man on the phone with the same name as you. And I I think it's always important that we give respect, respect is due, and our wives probably uh, are a huge part of us.
1: Yes, I uh, told her after three days, you know, it was a letter, there was no email, there was no phone, which meant I have to write a whole letter, find an envelope. Right. And I didn't feel like it. And she said, but that's really not nice. It's very rude. The man wrote you a letter, took his time, You should answer him.
0: Yeah, it's it's just like uh, we probably both got better than we deserve when it comes to our wives. So thank you to our wives. We love you. And thank you for making us better men. But, so one part interested me in the beginning of the story. With a name like Sassoon, like you had to have known on some level. That the dynasty that were the Baghdadi Jewish family, you had to know you were related in some in some level coming up. Like, how, how did it? Was there like a disconnect there? Or?
1: Well, I mean, I grew up, and I tell the story again in the book that um, my father wanted always to tell me about the family glory, and I was totally uninterested, and in fact, I really wanted to irritate him and. As a 12-year-old, I put my fingers in my ears and run away, which did the trick and upset him every time I did this. Um, and and I really, years went by, and I never really was interested until this letter arrived. I mean, it's absolutely unbelievable how life changes, you know, because of one letter, and I am yeah. convinced to this day that had this man not written this letter you know i might have read here or there but there was nothing to 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 get me sucked into this long term project
0: yeah it's it's fascinating the way in which life reaches out to us and i'm a big fan of foreshadowing and i think what you said in the beginning of this little blurb right here was that you wanted to irritate your father you didn't want to listen to him and in a weird sort of way, we see that later on in the line with the Sassoons. <laughs> yes,
1: very much so. Everyone <laughs> wanted to irritate someone.
0: <laughs> it, it runs in the family, and I don't it care which family world. you're a part of. Like, no matter who are. we are as a family, like that is inside of us, right there. Yes. Well, they've made some incredible contributions to the family of Western globalization, and I know we have a short amount of time, but. but as we saw them move from the Middle East into the heart of Europe, is there, is there something that was unique to that family that brought them into the heart of Europe?
1: I mean, I, I think their story is really the story of many refugee families uh, fled with nothing, determined to succeed, determined and committed to work very hard to educate their children I don't think from that point of view it's a unique story. In this country there are hundreds if not thousands of these examples and in other places. I think the other thing you'll learn, you have to be at the right place at the right time. But even then I argue you know, if you and I were in Bombay, in India, in the mid-19th century why did you become so wealthy? And I just was okay successful when we both witnessed the same thing in essence we had the same opportunities and that really goes to the character of the founder he was very determined i think there are things that you look back almost 200 years later and realize wow he realized at a very early stage that even today is very applicable that it's all about information 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 about the markets information about the global economy and information about your competitors and that made him spread his network first in asia then the middle east then europe and he gained an incredible advantage he was the first of all the merchant families to send a son in the 1850s to London. And why is that important? Because information was so slow. It's not like today, every second you get three things. Message took, on average, between one city to another three to four weeks, assuming it arrived and the ship was not wrecked. So it's a long time, but even that extra advantage, so the sun was there when the civil war in America erupted. Um, cotton prices quadrupled. The world of, of commodity trading was in a frenzy. You have the first two years of the war prices more than quadruple. Every trader in the world wants to trade cotton. But then other suppliers entered Brazil, Egypt, Egypt. Um, India expanded its production, and the price collapsed. By the end of the Civil War, 80% of merchants in India filed bankruptcy because they got stuck with a huge amount of supply of cotton. So, yes, someone else could have been. The trick is when to be in the first two years and take all the advantages and when to walk away and just sit on the sidelines and not take the risk.
0: Yeah. And that is a huge, I, I would argue that's almost instinct because you, yes. there's so much there, you have to have the right instinct to be like, this is the time. How do you know I can feel it? Right? That's, and that's something that I don't think you it's can feeling, but also information. Yes. Learning about the news,
1: what's happening. The fact that there was a son in London who was closer to the war, right. closer to American and British journalists at the time, um, closer to the British government who, who had more, better information than people in India about what's going on in the Civil War, all added to his instinct. Instinct alone doesn't work if it's right. not accompanied by good information.
0: Right. It reminds me of, oh god, I hope I don't butcher this. It reminds me of the time when the Rothschilds were the first to know about the battle. I think it was a Waterloo and they came back and they were to tell them. Yes. Right. It's fascinating to think about. What what do you think it is, or when do you think the allure of wealth began to penetrate the family?
1: I think the minute the founder died Mm. and his Eldest son decided in the early 1870s to move to London. Now, the move to London, he explained it. Look, London is the only capital for the financial world at the time. There was no New York as it exists today. It was really London. And he thought as the new boss, he should be there. Hmm. But there was another element. You know, the life of British aristocracy, reports and letters by his younger brothers telling him about the wonderful life in England and its countryside and the um, parties with the royalty. It, it, it made a dent. I mean, you could see sometimes in his answers, there is a little bit of jealousy. Why the heck am I sitting in hot steaming Bombay, and you guys are having fun. Shouldn't I be the one having fun? And, you know, he was knighted. He changed his name, and from 1872, he became known as Sir Albert. And then more honors were bestowed on him, and he felt, okay, I can be part of this aristocracy. And, of course, one thing, Leads to another. If you are a part of the upper class, you have to have the right houses, the right estates, the similar hobbies as others. And so one thing leads to another. If you're not in the horse racing or hunting and everyone is doing it, so you get involved. But what does that mean? More money spent, more money spent and less time on work. He continued to work very hard. But his siblings and the third generation, it went downhill very quickly.
0: Yeah, for everybody listening to this, the book is called The Sassoons, and it's by Joseph Sassoon. It came out uh, relatively recently, and I recommend everybody pick it up. It's a great book. And for those that are watching, you can see the book behind him. It's a great book. Go pick it up and, and, and check it out. But as we continue on this conversation, it it, it just— underscores the old adage of short sleeves to short sleeves in three generations. Even though it went longer than generations, what you alluded to was almost a the cancer or the, the the cancer of monetary values that comes in and seems to erode the hard work that so many founding members of families have laid for us.
1: And in- intergenerational wealth is not a simple thing. Um, you know, first generation works always very hard, very determined, um, sometimes doesn't have the money, starts at, at, at humble beginnings. Then comes the second generation, and the first generation wants to spread that wealth, yeah. which is natural. You want children, your children to live in better conditions that you live. You want your children to go to better schools. You want your children to have more luxury and travel the third generation gets it as if as a as, as a must you know because by then it's part of the game you're born into a wealthy family you're born into large estates and fancy houses so it becomes very difficult to get that drive of hunger of determination um and then comes the family clashes, which is yeah. normal since mankind, yes. <laughs> you know, brothers fight, uh, siblings fight, cousins fight. Um, there is a lot at, at risk, and that is human nature again. So combine those rifts with this generational, intergenerational wealth, and very, very few family manages to hold and continue for six or seven generations.
0: Yeah, one on a, on a related note about the book, not only does it go into detail about a really dynamic family, but one thing that I got out of it so far is it's not just the tale of one dynamic family. It's the tale of family. And you can find your family in this book. Maybe your family hasn't risen to the level that they have, I guarantee you, when you read the book, you're going to see some similar riffs. You're going to see some similar ideas that have happened between you and your mom, or you and your dad, or you and your brother. And I want to commend you on on finding a way to translate the story of family so that everybody can be part of it. You don't see that too often. Often when people write biographies or when they write about their family, it tends to stay in the lane of Particularly there, I think you did a good job bridging that gap and, and allowing everyone to take something out of it.
1: I say in the book, this is not a family story or history, but it's a history of a family. You're right, and there is a huge difference between the two. You're absolutely right. You know the clashes, the eagerness for success, yeah. um, the movement, um, the the adventure spirit this is not just one family. It's across the board.
0: Yeah. And it's, it it's, Oh, let me ask you this question. As we're talking about families, do you see the family unit as an organism with a life cycle?
1: To a certain extent when it comes to money? Yes. Mm. Um, I think, as I said, it's really, really difficult. Yeah. Um, You know, sometimes also the first generation not only is very successful and determined, but it has a huge ego where it doesn't believe that anyone else, including your own children, can be as smart and hardworking. So you keep second-guessing them while the, the first generation is alive, but then they're preventing them from developing on their own taking risk learning from their mistakes david Sassoon actually managed to do that the problem was he did not foresee that what wealth can do by the third generation
0: yeah and how could you i mean even today with the with the ideas we have how can you you can't you can't guarantee
1: anything you can't mm-hmm. guarantee the other thing is which was in the family it's, there are two kinds of talent. You need a, a talent, but you need a business talent. So in the family, there was talent, but they were not interested in business. So you have a very famous World War I poet that is studied in Britain today called Siegfried Sassoon. Um, the first woman who was a news editor of a major national newspaper was a Sassoon but neither of them were interested in the business. So again, you are the first generation. You can't tell the third generation, oh, I want three out of my four children to be interested in business. Unfortunately, it doesn't work and you can't control
0: it. That's such a great point. And I, it just makes me, I think it it lends credence to families. Like I've always wondered, What must it be like to know the history of your great grandfather in detail? What must it be like to go on a vacation or to have a family reunion where you can sit with two or three generations and you can hear the different perspectives of the first generation, the second and the third? And as a grandchild, you could actually see the changes happening there.
1: I mean, some some families do that. There are families I understand in the US or in Germany, which are four or five mm-hmm. generations, they meet in a conference once a year. But then I hear that there are so many frictions and yes. and, and uh, nerves are frying all the time. Um it is wonderful, however. Um you know, one of the couple of places there is still a lot of memories. I you can get in any taxi drive with any taxi driver in Mumbai, which has twenty-two million people living in India in that city alone. Um, and you just say Sassoon, and there is the Sassoon Library, which is in the heart of the city. There is the Sassoon Docks. There is the Sassoon Hospital. There are no Sassoons, but the name. Kept, and it is really there is a nostalgia. You go to Shanghai, and the, uh, one of the tallest buildings until the nineteen eighties was a Sassoon building. It's still today a beautiful hotel overlooking the bay. There is a lo- definitely some kind of pride in that, um, but it and, and it's also fascinating in the sense to know how things move over 150, 180 years, certain things, they're similar. Others are totally different.
0: Yeah. It, it brings me back to the first part of your book when, uh, only a a few people left Baghdad to go into here and and others were left behind. That must've been an interesting, depending on which side you were on.
1: Yeah, I am the So when David Sassoon left with his father because of a conflict with the governor, who was a very corrupt governor, his siblings stayed behind. I am the descendant of one of those siblings. You know, it's really amazing. That's the other difference. It was hard for me to understand that in 1830 or 1840 or 1850, People traveled so much, not only for business, but for pleasure. The fact that you're sitting somewhere with your four children who were all very young and you say, okay, let's go to India because I heard there are opportunities. Now, today, think about it. You would do a thousand uh, research on the internet. You go to read books. You ask people. There was no one to talk. I mean, just people in the port saying, yeah, India has a lot of opportunities. The other thing which really surprised, and then they continue to travel. The other thing that really took me by surprise, how young these men were. You know, he sent his second son, who was barely 17, with a command saying, go to China. Explore the opportunities and come back. And can you imagine it today? <laughs> Sending a 17-year-old, doesn't speak a word of the local language, doesn't know anyone, doesn't have a relative. And more than that, they continued these young people to travel also for leisure. You know, there is one guy who went to Japan because he fell in love with the gardens there and the mountains, another one went all the way to Norway to climb a mountain. I mean, and you think, wow, we think we're the globalized jet set people, but they were doing it. There were no jet and the trips were hard and hazardous, but they still did it.
0: Yeah, talk about the difference between, I think there's two kinds of education. And as we talk about being an educator and experience, How different is the world of someone going out and getting their own experience versus someone going to school and learning from someone who knew a guy who might've had a friend whose dad did something?
1: (laughs) huge difference. And today, wherever you're going, you're with your phone at 17 or 18 or 20, and
0: your mom is watching where you are
1: (laughs) and checking on you.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's it's interesting. And we laugh about it, but in some ways it's kind of sad because imagine being 17 or 16 in some of these cases where kids are off and they're learning and they have real consequences, not only for what they do, but on top of the consequences are real expectations from the family to succeed. It's interesting to see that character there.
1: And you had to make decisions as as a teenager. You had to make decisions on the spot you have to calculate the risk. There was no one to call, a mom or dad. Hey, what should I do? Or I am in trouble. You're in trouble. You get out of the trouble, and and you're making decisions. And it's very, very different.
0: Yeah, it's 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 odd to see this world of prolonged adolescence that seems to be plaguing us today. You know, I. I, I know I was probably guilty of it, and I try to make notes to not do that. Let me let me shift gears here a little bit and try to just push back, because I think that that sometimes makes for a great conversation. So do you think that maybe there's a little bit of cult of remembrance that happens when you're looking back on this particular family?
1: I mean, it's really interesting, the fact that so many things, you can't put everything in the book. Um, One of the most fascinating things, the book came out um, a few months ago in Britain and outside the U.S., in India, in China. It came out two weeks ago in the States. Suddenly, uh, people who are connected to the Sassoon's are popping up. (laughs) And I get asked, you know, I'm looking for my great-grandmother. Can you help me find her? I think. She was connected to the Sassoon. It's really wonderful, but it definitely stories like this and what you said about readers don't have to be specifically interested in the Sassoons per se, but just to learn about how family lives went in, because they might have been different experiences, but the trends and the upheavals and the fights and... The love and the losses are um, all the same.
0: Yeah, that's well put. And, you know, it, I've always found it interesting to me. And maybe it's because I look for these little idiosyncrasies or or maybe they're actually true. I, I prefer to believe the latter. However, you know, I, I it seems that it's a perfect book about families and the time we're in today and the geopolitical environment we're in. It almost seems like your book is a call to families to say, hey. Take a look around. Look at your mom. Look at your dad. Look at your grandparents. Stop your bickering with your silly brother or your silly sister. I, I think that there's a there's there's some lessons in there to be had.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I mentioned it. You know, I, I, I told you the story I ran away with. And then when I was writing the book and my father passed away uh, more than two decades ago, I thought, oh, man, if I had only three minutes with him— if I only could ask him a question, and I, you know, it's funny, sometimes I go to bookshop to sign the books and kids come and they say, mm-hmm. what should, you know, and I say, sometimes be interested in your family history. Learn about it. Learn what your grandfather before they go away. Learn about the, the family because these things don't come back. And I am sure I missed a lot because I never talked to him. I never heard the stories that did not get into the archives. You know, the archives is the only part, but the other side of the history goes away.
0: Yeah, the, and some of that is the real juice of the history, the emotions exactly. behind it, right?
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I could feel you did a good job at expressing your concern and your your reservations about not talking to your dad. I could feel it when you wrote it in there. Like, gosh, if I just listened to him one time, I'd have such a better book right now. You know, you can, it comes through in the way yeah, you write. You did a yeah, good job. you're
1: absolutely right.
0: So what about uh, Victor Sassoon, Sir Victor Sassoon and his brilliance? You write about that in the book.
1: Well, he's a very um, flamboyant, a colorful character. You know, he was one of the most fanatic photographers. Um, He was among a a dozen of people around the world that not only carried a camera every time, uh, wherever he went, but I found that whenever Eastman Kodak um, came up with a new version of a camera, Guess what? He was one of the first to receive it because they realized, wow, it's it's like having your first iPhone and you're the only one walking <laughs> with it. Um, and he took amazing pictures. He took a lot of models, but he took a lot of like the invasion of uh, Shanghai by the Japanese forces. And these are really incredible uh, images. Um. By the time he got to China and Shanghai in particular in the 1920s, um, commodity trading died uh, after World War I. And he shifted to real estate. And he was brilliant. He realized after talking to engineers and architects that the land in Shanghai is very similar to Manhattan. So he brought in a firm from Manhattan that built a skyscraper to build one in China, in Shanghai. And so he built the first a skyscraper. But he had a huge ego, the size of the skyscraper. <laughs> On the top of the roof, and I went and saw it, if you fly above it, there are the letters V-S to this day, Victor Sassoon. And I think it's the only building in the world <laughs> that has <laughs> initials. Funny. On it, um, you know, a little bit of the arrogance got him in the end. He misread the political leaves, the economic leaves that were taking place in Asia. He uh, didn't expect the Japanese to attack the U.S. He didn't believe is going to happen. Um, after the war, he continued to believe that even if the communist took over china they're going to be open for business with your with western firms all proved wrong and when you make three major decisions like this wrong the result was a calamity um all buildings 14 of them including some skyscrapers were nationalized with zero compensation so huge amount of money was lost in 1949.
0: Yeah, it's. I think I've read it somewhere, heard it said, that you can make a mistake, you can recover from a mistake, but the third mistake is the one that drowns you, or something along those lines. No, yeah,
1: <laughs> I mean, you know, keep making mistakes, sometimes right. you recover, but you can't just
0: keep doing it and make and big decisions. Right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think about the different perspectives you have. But you know what also intrigues me is what one can learn from a gigantic mistake. When someone makes a mistake, one mistake that causes so much calamity, be it in your family or in the surrounding environment, you can learn a lot from that experience that someone who never had those resources could ever learn.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, we all make mistakes. I'm sure right. David Sassoon made a lot of mistakes, but the question is, what is the size of the mistake? Right. right. What is the risk you're taking? Um, and how quickly are you willing to admit that you made a wow. calculation? That's a great point. And to reverse it and to change it. In his case, he kept going forward. I mean, the writing was on the wall that it's going to be over, that the communists will take over. Everybody kept going and saying, no, maybe. Now, whether it was wishful thinking, whether it was delusional, I don't know, but the end result was not good.
0: Okay, so let, if, we can, if we can dig into this idea, maybe if we can dig into the idea of families attaining wealth and then making a critical decision, it seems that certain generations – Sometimes this cancer of, of wealth can be surrounding yourself with people that are yes men, and you begin to believe, hey, this is a great idea, George, or yeah, George, you're so smart. And then all of a sudden, you no longer have that critical people around you to say, hey, look, wait a minute, that's a stupid idea, or you know what, maybe you're wrong here. You think that that is something that begins to creep into the world of wealthy families at some point in time I
1: think it creeps into anything anyone who has power it doesn't yeah. matter whether you're wealthy whether you're in okay. politics whether you're in corporate world in any 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 position it's very interesting because in in 1949 after the nationalization he still had a lot of good connection um with in Hong Kong and uh, agencies of business. And his right-hand man, who happened to be a second cousin, whom he trusted and relied on all the years from the 1920s onward, told him, look, we can rebuild in Hong Kong. You know, Hong Kong is not going to be part of China. It's going to take off because it will be the hub for the whole area. I think he was beaten so much that he said, no, let's sell everything. His Mm. cousin said to him, but we're going to sell at 10, 15 cents to the dollar. It just does not make any sense. Cousin resigned because Victor would not hear him. He did sell the assets for 10, 15 cents and headed to the Bahamas. And of course, lost the incredible growth that Hong Kong economy uh, had from 1949 until 1999. The world, the quickest growth anywhere else in the world for half a century.
0: Yeah, it's it's almost, it's it, unless you read the book, and once again, ladies and gentlemen, the book is called The Sassoons. It's a phenomenal book. You should check it out it's it's almost difficult to understand the magnitude of what happened or the decisions that were made unless you get the history that you wrote in the beginning there. Right. And right? it's it's fascinating to think about.
1: It if is a global history. It's a history of colonialism. It's right. a history of Europe. It's a history of Asia. It's a history of nationalism. I think it has enough history – but it also has a lot of drama for a lot of people who are just enjoy a good drama story.
0: Right. And there's even for those of us who enjoy uh, the drug trade, a little bit of opium stories in there. A lot. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. There's so many parallels. Like if you look at, you know, you could almost draw a parallel to the East India company and opium as maybe some of the Sackler family and some of the, the opium derivatives that are happening in our country today, you know, and that's what I love about history, and that's what I love about even the book you wrote. I think shows a lot of parallels of maybe what happened in the past and what what can happen in the future, and that, that's why it's a beautiful book to read. Thank you, thank you very much. Right, what if I think for a moment? I'm guessing that. Well, you know what, why why should I guess? Who do you think you identify most with in the family? When you were writing about it, did you find a certain person in the family that you identified most with?
1: The person that really took me by surprise, and I had the book about around six main characters, is actually Flora Sassoon. There is a whole chapter. She was the only person Woman who was a a global CEO at the end of the 19th century. Her story is truly remarkable. A woman who learned six new six languages, who can recite from Shakespeare anything you want, Um, started going to the office with her husband to learn the business. When the husband died, she announced that she is going to take over um, against. Family tradition against Indian tradition against Asian tradition against all tradition. In fact, there were no global CEO, a woman CEO running a global business in Europe or the US at the time. There were a lot of matriarchs, but they were not running day to day a global business. She really was a fascinating character. Um, She just... Had in her story everything, this determination, the cleverness, yet the um, conspiracies by the men in the family to push her out because they couldn't stand her success. They couldn't fathom how they, between them all the time, correspondent would say, how can a widow with three children run a global business? instead yeah, of saying wow, that's amazing that the widow is running a global business with such success, they are angry that a widow is running a successful business.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating to to highlight that and I think you did a great job I I have a daughter and when I when I hear you talk about that, it makes me really proud because I can see the world in which we live in and the potential for, women who are sometimes smarter than all the men around them and have a different way of looking at it, maybe because of their brothers or maybe not, but it's, it's a beautiful thing to think about. I'm wondering what is it that you want people to take away from this book when they read it? I like them to think
1: of a family that, as I said, you know, started as a refugee, built an incredible history, Um, gave a lot to philanthropy um, throughout the whole 150 years, whether in India, whether in China, whether it's in Britain, wherever they were. Um, It's a drama. And like any other drama that you watch on television or you read, it has its ups, its downs, its its good characters, less good characters. And I hope also it has some fun parts.
0: Yeah, I think that there's a lot of fun in it. I, I think I think we've gotten away from from great literature. And when you read a story like this, it kind of rings back to the ideas of Shakespeare. It's this idea of the the stage, all the world's a stage. And I like the way you wrote the book because you can see yourself in that play. You can see the story. You can see the, the majestic parts of it. And you can see the conspiracies and the people conspiring against one another on there. Yep. I think it turned out really well. Thank you. Right. Let me see. You know, does do you think that the downfall of the family presents the opportunity for a new branch of the family to arise. And I was thinking about the book. Maybe that's one thing that may come of the book. Maybe there's a new branch of the Sassoon family because of the book. What do you think? Time will tell.
1: I mean, it's hard to know. I don't know. You know, there might be someone who's 16-year-old somewhere, a boy or a girl in the middle of nowhere, um, reading this book and thinking, I will raise... Surrect the the tradition could be
0: yeah that's interesting to think about i i'm curious if you have anything after writing the book sometimes authors wish that they could have changed something in the book is there anything that you w- you would go back now and maybe make a tweak to or something i mean i could
1: have added a lot of stories i could have added a lot of vignettes But, you know, you're dealing with editors who are tough, are good, but tough. So, you know, we had our share of battles and arguments uh, over the whole period. Um, There is never such a thing as a perfect book. There really is. And my attitude to any book that I read and definitely a book I write, you know, it's, it's, it's a story. Read it. Enjoy it.
0: And learn from it, right? What were, were there? Were there any? You know, one thing I really miss about books today is there used to be these books called letters, like letters of warpool, or or these authors would write letters, or people would collect letters from the family and publish those. Is there maybe something in the? Have you thought about maybe having like a book of letters from particular parts of the family?
1: Well, I quoted a lot of these letters. I really do. I sometimes verbatim, sometimes uh, not verbatim. Um, Sometimes I summarized it. Um, They wrote huge amount. You know, I tell my students, if anyone complain about their emails and how much. These people wrote, you know, when you have so many siblings, you couldn't do like today c c c c seven people that you had to rewrite seven copies i mean sure when they got very wealthy they hired people to write the copies but i think they spent an hour and an hour and a half every morning and every night dealing with correspondence because that was the essence of the business and you have to keep updating all members of the family who are spread. You don't want to leave the guy in Hong Kong and not knowing, and you don't want the guy in London not knowing, and you don't want the guy in Liverpool, and you don't want the guy in the Middle East not to know. So it was a huge, huge task, and they did it.
0: Right. You had mentioned that While writing the book, you did quite a bit of traveling to the different places that you write about and visiting different areas. Was there a particular place that you traveled to that really struck you to your core?
1: Yeah, there was. I mean, in India, they had a house in the country, in the mountains, very high in the mountains because of the weather. And I was kept researching and I found that actually it still exists. Then I found to my shock, that it's a little boutique hotel, and I contacted the owner, and he told me it's full because it has only four bedrooms, but tell me next time, and I ended up going with my wife and a couple of friends and spent three nights, and nothing has changed in this place, definitely not the scenery, so when you open the door, and you see the valley, and you see the mountains, that's the same view that they saw, and to me, that really moved me. Um, Also, the rooms haven't changed, and there are still some old pictures of the family hanging there. Um, It really was different from other places that underwent a huge renovation changes, um, internal changes. This place, definitely, the garden was the same garden. When they sit in the garden, we were sitting in the garden. And 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 yes, it, it brought a lot of things
0: into real life. Ah, that's beautiful to think about. Do you think that maybe that's the same thing with the family now? Like the same way that house remained the same with the same views. Do you think there's people in your family today that still maybe have some of the same views as, say, Victor or David?
1: I don't know. I don't think so. Okay. Things have changed. People have different interests. Um, you know, they are curious about it, but life moves on. I mean, that's the beauty of life. Also, you know, every 20, 30 years, the, the train of life takes us to another station.
0: Yeah. And it would be boring if it stayed in the same exactly. spot, right? Exactly. So. <laughs> Joseph, I want to be mindful of your time. I, um, I'm i really thankful that I got to spend some time with you today. And the book, ladies and gentlemen, is called The Sassoons*. I highly recommend you pick it up and check it out. It's, it's really fun. It's a drama. It's a conspiracy. It's the story of not only Joseph's family, Professor's family, but your family. And you can find yourself in there. It's almost like a choose your own adventure because you can choose to be whichever character you want to be in there. And I find that's a fun thing to do. If, if, if you were going to sum it up or, or tell people one last thing about it, Dr. Sassoon, what, what would it be?
1: Well, just before that, there is also an audio. So for many of okay. your audience who drive a lot, don't have the time to read, it's a wonderful thing to hear by a professional actor reading it. Um, I think that it's really a family saga That takes place over 200 years, ups and downs, wonderful occasions, marriages, divorces, huge celebrations, huge parties. It has everything, and I hope um, you will enjoy reading or listening to it.
0: That's a great point, and it's, it's available on Audible, is that correct? Correct. And where can people, where else can people buy it? They could probably buy it at Amazon. Amazon is the
1: easiest and probably the cheapest way to get it quickly to you. Nice.
0: Do you sell it on your website as well? No, I don't. Okay. Fair enough. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I had an absolute blast talking here and getting to meet you and read the book. I hope everyone listening to the podcast or watching the video will feel the same. Do you have anything coming up as far as speaking gigs or where can people find you? And and maybe what are you excited about? Yeah, I've been
1: going to a lot of book tours. I'm heading tomorrow to Chicago for a couple of talks. Um, You know, I was in Boston Literary Festival last weekend. um, Doing in D.C. a couple of events in New York. Um, At some point, we'll get to California. Nothing to Hawaii, unfortunately.
0: (laughs) Well, you—if you ever find yourself out here—I would love to get my copy signed and buy you a cup of coffee. So come on. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Fantastic, ladies and gentlemen! Thank you so much for spending time on the True Life Podcast today, and we will see you soon. Thank you for your time.
1: Take care. Thanks. Okay. Hello.